are entering the Freedom Hut. Democrats are dealing with the increasing realization that they are, in fact, for open borders. Can they walk away from this or not? And Biden is losing his lead, folks. I told you it was going to happen. We'll get into who's gaining and how in that Democratic primary. Plus, an editorial calling for the doxing of members of Border Patrol. Of course, it says it's not calling for that. But it is. We've got that and much more coming up, including Trump's visit to North Korea and the aftermath of that coming up on The Buck Sexton Show. This is The Buck Sexton Show, where the mission mission is to decode what really matters with actionable intelligence. Make no mistake. America. You're a great American. Again. The Buck Sexton Show begins. Former CIA analyst. Former member of the NYPD. He's a great guy. It is Buck Sexton. Now. There's nothing compassionate about open borders. There's nothing compassionate about refusing to change the laws that human traffickers use to take advantage of poor families. Those who would advocate open borders, free health care for illegal immigrants, and making illegal immigration legal are making it easier for human traffickers to mistreat poor and vulnerable families. That is morally wrong, and that has got to stop. Welcome to the Buck Sexton Show. Vice President Pence nails it. And this is now one of the biggest areas of separation between the two political parties in this country, between the Republicans and the Democrats, between the right and the left. We now believe in a border and rule of law and immigration control. They do not. Now, they can pretend that they do because what they're hoping is that they can wait, you know, they can allow the situation to continue to devolve at the border while the perception, the politics shifts increasingly in their favor. And then when it's too late, when they've already achieved the electoral victories that they think will come from allowing this massive influx of people who will be overwhelmingly Democratic voters, who will be overwhelmingly dependent on the state at some level. When it's too late for the American people to have a say about it, then they'll turn around and go, oh, yeah, you know, it turns out we kind of were for open borders all along. Whoops are bad. Welcome to a one party state. That's the game they're playing. That's the strategy. We see it now. It's clear now. We, we point out that they are for open borders. They say, no, we're not. OK, well, explain this to me. I just did a, a quick. Google search definition of open borders, and this is what came up. An open border is a border that enables the free movement of people between jurisdictions with few or no restrictions on movement. How is that not what we have at the southern border? It doesn't say there's no restriction at all. That's that's not what the definition of an open border is. But there are a few restrictions on it, and that's pretty much where we are. If you show up and you are not from Canada or Mexico your non-contiguous country, and you have a story about fleeing oppression in your home country, and especially if you have a kid with you, you are getting into the United States. That's it. That's the only, the, whole, the only restrictions you have to meet are those two things. I'm scared. My home country stinks. And I got a kid with me who's mine. Let me into America. Thank you. That doesn't sound like a lot of restrictions to me, does it? You can do this from anywhere. You can do this from Bangladesh. You can do this from... Botswana, you can do this from Cuba, you can do this from Venezuela, and certainly you can do it from Central America because that's what we see happening every single day. Every day now. 
and the Democrats have created a situation where they have no choice now but to just continue pushing in this direction because otherwise they'd have to admit that they were wrong. You know, they at first they, they, they've tried all the different lies and the different tactics of delay. Oh, there's not a crisis. The caravans aren't a problem. Well, well now it's a it's a full blown crisis. And what do they do? They blame the Republicans for it. They say that Trump is heartless and Trump is mean. Any efforts to enforce the law, any efforts to control our southern border are met with scorn. Scorn from Democrats. And now, finally. Because the progressive wing of the Democratic Party is so powerful, you have them saying things that would have been unthinkable even a few years ago. Although we've known they've wanted this all along, they never would have said, let's give illegal aliens, let's give illegal aliens free health care. How do you justify that? What, what, what am I supposed to make of a government that says, hey, Buck, you have to pay whatever taxes we say you have to pay. And we're going to give your money away to people who aren't even supposed to buy our own, by the same laws, right? The, the, the same power they have to pass laws that say you, we can take your money in the form of taxation. We've also passed laws that say only certain people are allowed to be here, but we're going to take money from you and we're going to give it to those people who aren't allowed to be here. And you better not say a word about it. Or else you're a racist. You're a xenophobe. Huh. This is going to be a tough sell, I think, to a lot of the American people. They keep saying, well, what about emergency rooms? Yeah, we're a kind-hearted, we are a kind-hearted people. We, we don't want anyone to suffer. We, don't, we certainly don't want anyone to die for lack of, of medical treatment. But, I mean, I have to ask, if we're going to just give general health care to illegal aliens, what about people who just show up here? Do we pay for their health care? Can you just fly here now and demand an operation? Well, if I go back to my home country without this operation, I'll die. America must pay for this operation. Are we now the world's soup kitchen and health care clinic? Sounds to me like we're setting ourselves up for that. Tom Perez, the uh, DNC chair, he's out there making one of the most disingenuous and just ridiculous arguments I've, I've heard in a long time, but they're the Democrats are desperate here because they've now they've made their bed. They're going to have to sleep in it. They all and that second debate, which was where all the primary candidates, with the exception of Warren, who's clearly agreeing with going to agree with them. They all raised their hands. They all raised their hands and said that they believe that health care should be given to illegal aliens. How can you justify that, folks? We're twenty two trillion dollars in debt. We can't afford the Medicare system over the long term that we already have in place for our own people. Now, their their big plans are make that system even larger so it covers everyone. So that there's really no the, the only cost conservation, the only cost cutting that can be in place is just going to be rationing, which means you're going to the government's going to say you're going to get health care. You're just going to wait a really long time for it. You're going to, you know, suffer. And maybe die while waiting for you. But it's going to be free if you get it, but you might not get there. Oh, by the way, we're also going to take that overtax health care system. We're going to add a bunch of illegal aliens into the mix. Interesting today, I was on Outnumber and I had someone try to correct me and say undocumented. I'm sorry. No, not playing that. And I said this on air. No, the correct legal term is illegal alien. 
If you want to say illegal immigrant, I'm okay with that too, close enough, but I'm not saying undocumented. I'm not creating some special category. I'm trying to be all so nicey-nice to people who are here in violation of the law. I don't want to pay taxes. I pay taxes because it's the law. I don't think that I'd be a bad person if I stopped paying taxes. I don't think America would cease to function if I stopped paying taxes. But I understand why that law is there, and I understand why I have to obey it. Legal aliens aren't allowed to show up here whenever they want, however they want, engage in document fraud, not file for taxes, not obey our laws, and then turn around and say, and you owe us more stuff. And that's what's happening. So how does Perez, I mentioned this, how does Perez try to justify this? And this is quite a stretch, but they're desperate. And it's an insurance program, so you have to pay into it. And as you know, immigrants, including undocumented immigrants, pay billions of dollars in taxes. And, and that's the reality. And what, what Democrats also said, uh, Chris, which is far different from Republicans, is that if you have a pre-existing condition, you should be able to keep your coverage. Democrats believe that health care should be available. Affordable, quality health care should be available to everyone. Illegal aliens pay Billions of dollars in taxes? That's interesting. Does that mean, is, is, is Perez making the argument that because they, when they buy things, have to, you know, they, they pay for sales tax or whatever, that, that they should get free health care? He says they're paying into an insurance system. We all know what that really means. They're going to get subsidized. The whole point of that system is to spread the risk around and individuals that can't meet their premiums are going to be getting help from the state to meet their premiums. But they're going into an insurance pool. They're bringing less resources to that pool. Many of them are going to have health conditions, especially coming from particularly poor countries where they have uh, low access to care to begin with, preventative care, uh, vaccinations, all kinds of, of things that are going to be issues. But illegals get health care too. Hmm. Where does that stop? Illegals that have been here for how long? A day? A year? If anyone shows up here in America right now and says, I need a heart transplant, it is America's obligation to give me a heart transplant or else America is an evil and racist country. Do the Democrats have the, the stomach to say, well, you know, sorry, we got our own people to take care of. We can't do that. You're a citizen of another country. That's the thing about all these individuals who are showing up. They have a country. They are not stateless people. They are Hondurans or El Salvadorans or in some cases Cubans or, or Bangladeshis or whatever it may be. But we cannot be responsible for the entire world's poor. We have a country that we're trying to preserve and we have a state that has obligations to us. Not just obligation to preserve our individual freedom and our liberty, but obligations to be reasonable stewards, although... This is a stretch even without the illegal alien issue. Reasonable stewards of our resources. You know, a state is supposed to operate a big S state like an extended family of sorts. We are a tribe. We are a nation. We are a people. And we're supposed to take care of each other. What's unique about America is that we are a people not based on skin color or ethnicity or any creed other than our Americanness. But that can include everybody or else there's no such thing as Americanness. I mean, what you really have here is the Democratic Party embracing the end of anything that is specifically American. You show up here, you stay, you go, you come. You, you know, 
Everyone gets the same stuff that happens to be here. It's just really then a question of a governing body administering to U.S. soil. But there is no such thing as the American people anymore if citizenship does not have privileges over non-citizens. There is no such thing as, as America if we have a border that is entirely open to anyone who deigns to show up and leaves at will, I might add. Democrats have boxed themselves into this. There's no way that they can walk away from it without clearly looking like phonies. Now, may- maybe that's the plan. And that's why you have Kamala Harris. And we're going to get into some of the Democrat back and forth here with Harris and Biden and where all this is going. Maybe the plan is just to harness the unbelievable mendacity of our media and they'll just say, oh, no, they were never really for giving illegals health care. They were never really for open borders. You know, that was just some private blah, blah, blah. Trump's a racist. You know, they'll just try some misdirection, try the lies that they always try in the service of the left and the Democratic Party. But right now, I don't see how they walk away from this and their position. This is a losing position at the national level. Yes, they're you know, about 40 percent of this country is too foolish, too childish in their thinking to understand that we have immigration laws for a reason and that breaking those laws is a problem. We've got a big chunk of the country that does not understand that anymore, that rejects that very basic, very basic understanding. But I'd say about 55 to 60 percent of the country, thankfully, so like, you know, there's something about being American that still matters, and the government needs to recognize that. The government needs to make that count, to treat Americans differently from non-Americans, or to treat legal residents and visitors to this country differently from illegal ones. The efforts on the left to meld these things so that they're all coming together and there's no difference and no distinction, this is calamitous for the country, I hope, I believe, that a solid majority of the American people still recognize this as a disastrous idea. Disastrous. So... Democrats are going to have limited options to walk this back. And they may even double they may double down on the crazy. That has been their primary. Uh, that, that has been their their main way of dealing with this in recent months. We've got to talk about the the you know, if Biden and rather if uh, if Booker and, and Harris don't stop beating up on Biden, they're going to have to get they have to get charged for elder abuse. This is bad. What's going on here? They're they're going after Biden big time and it has made a dent, which I knew it would. I'm not going to sit here and keep patting myself on the back. You all know I told you Biden was a weak candidate, that he was Mr. One percent, that he was never, you know, and that he really just got lucky when Obama picked him. He was never look, he was here. Oh, you know what? We have to we have to take a quick moment. Why is it that I knew all along that Biden wasn't their guy? And then we'll get into also how they're trying to make sure he's not the guy. I will answer that in a moment. We are a generous and welcoming people here in the United States. The United States is a compassionate nation. But those who enter the country illegally and those who employ them disrespect the rule of law. We have proposed new legislation that will fix our immigration laws. Uh, and they are showing disregard for those who are following the law. Open borders have allowed drugs and gangs 
to pour into our most vulnerable communities. We simply cannot allow people to pour into the United States. Crucially, our plan closes the terrible loopholes exploited by criminals and terrorists. Undetected, undocumented, unchecked, and circumventing the line of people who are waiting patiently, diligently, and lawfully uh, to become immigrants in this country. Wow, I didn't realize President Obama was so hateful toward immigrants all the time. What's all this, oh, you can't come to the country illegally stuff from Obama? Man, he's so, so hateful. Oh, wait, you mean that the Democratic Party until about five minutes ago at least pretended to believe that there were laws when it came to immigration? You mean the Democratic Party was telling the American people they, too, wanted an orderly immigration system? Wanted us to enforce the laws? How quickly, how quickly the Democrats forget. Almost like it's a convenient thing for them to do and that it's not rooted in anything else. Almost like it's a problem. If the Democrats were to say, remember the recent history of when they had a Democrat in the White House. Huh. They're the ones who have changed, folks. Our side has not changed. We've been saying this for a long time. Legal immigration is a problem for this country. We do not have enough control over it. We do not have enough interior enforcement. There must be consequences for violating immigration laws or else those laws, it will not stop. You know, if if you could steal from a bank and you'd never get in trouble, there'd be a lot more stealing from the bank. This is as basic a law enforcement premise as you will find. If you do not punish people who break the law, you will have an endless supply of lawbreakers more so than if you were willing to do the just even the bare minimum to show that some people through deterrence enforcement will be punished. And that's where we are. The Democrats have gone full open borders. They can say they're not. That is what has happened. It's going to haunt them, I hope, in 2020. But watch how they try to demagogue the issue. We'll talk about how AOC is saying all kinds of crazy stuff. And they're even hoping put pressure on the very law enforcement agents themselves at our southern border. That's coming up. I knew it was going to happen. I've been saying it was going to happen. It's fun to get a prediction right. Biden is plummeting. Buck Sexton here, everybody. Thank you so much for uh, being with me. Sorry, we're, I think we're having some problem on the iHeart app, but we're addressing it. So if you're listening to this on the podcast, we're aware that there's, you know, later on, those of you listening on radio, hey, but uh, we're aware of some issues on the tech side. We're addressing it. Got a team of wizards working on it here. I can't do it, Captain. I need more power. So Biden's plummeting in the polls. And uh, here's what we got. The latest is the CNN SRSS poll. After the two primary debates, Harris is in second place among Democrats at 17%. Uh, She's firmly within the top here and Joe Biden once had a double digit lead and now he's down to single digits. He's got 22 percent. Uh, but Elizabeth Warren is in third place with 15 percent. You know, so so basically this is about Biden's about to get surpassed. And the moment that Biden is surpassed, folks, it's all over for him. The reason for Biden's rise was he was the default candidate. Well, he was VP and, you know, he's an establishment guy and, you know, the whole thing. Guess what? Nope. Nope. Not a candidate that can get it done against Trump. The Democrats have realized this. 
I've known this all along. This is not surprising. But the establishment fight is what's about to unfold before your eyes. It's going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. They all want to be in that, oh, New York Times, Washington Post, and NBC and CNN are supporting me lane. And that's where Booker and Kamala Harris have decided that or or had a really a pretty clear ambush of Biden. And they're going after him on his lack of wokeness, his lack of credibility within the minority community. Oh, Biden coasting. Oh, sorry. Oh, Biden. Biden coasting on Obama. Connections is not enough within the black community. That's what the left wing has exposed here. That's why they've gone after him. And Biden, like I said, the moment that he falls out, the moment he's not the front runner, he just drops from there because the guy, look, he's he's lost a step from even the Biden of 10 years ago or five years ago. And the guy's gotten kind of old. You know, age, as I said, is not age is not just a number, but I mean, age, it's it's more than just the age. It's the way that he he comes across. It's the lack of vitality. It's the lack of connection. And that's why they've gone after him with all this stuff. That's why you have now Biden at a at an event on the weekend. He was at the Rainbow Push Coalition luncheon. And when he was discussing this is Joe Biden now discussing criminal justice reform, said, quote, we've got to recognize the kid wearing a hoodie may very well be the next poet laureate and not a gangbanger. Now, this is Biden trying to establish some uh, bona fides with the minority community that he's going to need support from in order to not just win the nomination, but be a contender for the nomination. Biden was trying to make it sound like he understands the problems of the black community. He's trying to connect to the black community. And Booker just took him to the woodshed over this one. He tweeted out in response to this Biden comment, this isn't about a hoodie. It's about a culture that sees a problem with a kid wearing a hoodie in the first place. Our nominee needs to have the language to talk about race in a far more constructive way. Basically, Booker and Harris have come out saying old, old white man Biden over here who just his best days are way past him on the political scene. You guys don't want this guy to be in charge. He can't talk to minority communities. He can't inspire young uh, voters from minority communities or any voters from minority community. He can't even talk about this stuff appropriately. That's that's been the attack on him. And so far it's working. It's working because Biden is the guy that, remember, the media was, I said this all along, they were covering for him. He would say something like a, just a clownishly stupid and then say, oh, that's just Joe Biden being good old Joe. You know, they would they would spin it so it was like lovable and not dumb. No, it was actually dumb. There's a difference. And now that there's not this need to defend him, this is why, folks, this is why it's all coming out. This is really all a lesson in how dishonest the media is. Biden's been on the scene for how long? Now, all of a sudden, we get to hear about how he's out of touch with the African-American community after eight years of being Obama's VP. Now we get to hear about how Biden. Oh, we're going to hear from Warren, I'm sure, soon. Wait, mark my words, friends. Elizabeth Warren is going to she's going to put the nail in the Biden campaign coffin. She's going to finish him off in the polls by going after him from being too cozy with corporate interests. 
They're going to talk about redlining and bank lending and where Biden was and all that. And then Bi- that's going to so it's going to come from Warren. The, the, the final push out of the top tier or out of the top of the polls is going to come from Elizabeth Warren. But but Booker and Harris have already started this process. You know how it was clear to anybody really being honest about it, that Biden wasn't the guy, not just because he lacks connection and has never been a spectacular politician and has really gotten very far on being a kind of a demagogue without any substance. It's that he was Obama's VP for eight years. Who ran in 2016, folks? How could he not be if he wasn't the heir apparent for the Democratic Party after eight years of Obama coattail riding? Why would he be now? Doesn't make any sense. So Biden didn't make any sense. So he's not the one that we're going to be facing. I'm very confident in that prediction. I've been saying all along, as you know, now what we're going to see is who wins the fight for the establishment lane. People are starting to say that they really think that Warren is going to be able to straddle both the progressive and establishment side of things. And that's how she's going to become the nominee. You might have Pocahontas for president. That's going to be an interesting situation, my friends. We'll be right back. I mean, in that last facility, I was not safe from the officers in that facility. I don't know what AOC thinks she accomplishes with her stupidity, with her lies with her smears of the border patrol. But this has become an area where she just digs in. She doesn't care that what she says isn't true. Uh, She doesn't care that, uh, that there's so much that what she says is either out of context, provably false and, and just unfair to what's really happening there. But here's the problem the Democrats have. They can't back away from this now. There's no real alternative for them to focusing in on child separation and a, cri- and, and a humanitarian crisis at our borders and hoping the American people don't catch on to the fact that the Democratic Party is now effectively an open borders party. They just they, they use this as the shiny object. This is the distraction technique. Oh, but. Look at how terrible the conditions are in, in the uh, in these border facilities. And AOC saying that she was not safe from the officers in that facility. I, I don't uh, to me. That's just she's just engaging in ad hominem. This is a this is a slur against those individuals. But once you see what's passing for mainstream thought among Democrats these days when it comes to the border and when, when you see some of these these uh, different arguments that are being made about Border Patrol, then then this. You, you, you get what's happening here. Law enforcement will be demonized by the left whenever the left finds it convenient on any of these issues. Remember Black Lives Matter? You know, there was a lot of frustration, I think, within the African-American community during the Obama administration that came from the fact that the Obama administration was not, in fact, able to deliver on a lot of the, the promises that Obama made for Minority communities in general, and the black community more specifically. And so what happened? You had this this focus and the media played a huge role in this. This focus on uh, police officer involved shootings. And you had this Black Lives Matter movement that came along. And I was at covering these protests. I was at some of these protests. I saw exactly what they said, how they said it. They were demonizing cops. And this led to numerous instances of police officers being murdered and the murderer directly attributing his rationale for those murders 
to the rhetoric of and the theories of Black Lives Matter, which are that cops kill black people, young black men, for no reason other than racism on on a systematic level, you know, day in and day out, this is happening, and it's a massive problem and a commonplace problem, one that shows how deeply racist this country is. Which I mean, this is all this is lies, lies, and lies. It is in fact very rare. It is statistically incredibly rare. It is overwhelmingly not the case that officer-involved shootings are attributable to racism. It is almost always the case that it is either a mistake in a high uh, high tension situation or completely justifiable because the officer is defending himself or defending somebody else's life. But they allow this narrative to grow and to flourish. And, and Obama gave the Black Lives Matter narrative additional oxygen by when he would talk about it. He would never condemn the uh, the the real at the root of it, the lies, which are that this is something that needs to be confronted right now, that this is getting worse, that this is that was never true. There's less there's a less than a hundred police officer involved shootings every I mean when, fatal shootings of civilians by police officers every year. Less than a hundred. We're a country of three hundred and twenty million people. Plus about fifteen million illegals, but country of three hundred and twenty million citizens. And we're told that there was this horrible, horrible situation with, with police officers involving young black men. I, I bring it up just because you're seeing something similar happen right now with Border Patrol. You're seeing a, a situation where Border Patrol is being demonized. And that's why this article written by this, uh, this, this professor where she calls for the doxing, and that is what she's doing. She calls for the doxing of Border Patrol officers. She says she's not, but she is. Uh, It's one of the more upsetting and telling things to have been written and published uh, in a long time. I mean, this this stuff that that she goes into details about here in this uh, in this article, this is a New York Times. Let's be very clear. This is a New York Times op ed. Um. The treatment of migrants likely meets the definition of a mass atrocity. This uh, woman, Kate Cronin Furman, who I believe is British. Let's make sure I have that right. Um, Yep. University College London. So you got some British lady writing in The New York Times, which, you know, would like to think that it's a very elite publication and only publishes great stuff, saying that the treatment of migrants is a mass atrocity. This woman's a moron. She's an associate professor of who knows what and who knows where in, in, in the UK. Uh, a mass atrocity is lining up 100 people, executing them and, and dumping them in a mass grave. It's not holding a minor in a detention facility for a day or two where they are fed, where they are clothed, where they are housed, where they receive medical attention because our facilities are completely overwhelmed. You know, at some point, as I've been saying, if 100 people pile into your house... And say, we're staying here now, and you don't have beds for all of them, and you don't have food for all of them, and you didn't invite them in the first place. Is that your fault? We're not r- running around scooping up unaccompanied minors from, from Honduras and locking them in, in penitentiaries. We're trying to defend the United States southern border from what is a mass migration of illegals, and all we get from the left is comparisons to Nazis, and oh, it's also racist, and we're also terrible. They say that seven migrant children have died in U.S. custody. All of those children that died in U.S. custody have died from illnesses that had nothing to do, that at least that we can point to, with the United States or anything that we've done. 
They showed up and they were sick the day that, that they arrived. This is our fault now? You know, they, they keep talking about the migrant children that are kept in these facilities. They forget that a lot of them are unaccompanied minors, which means that these were kids that were, by their families, entrusted to cartel smuggling operations. God knows what's happening to them in this whole process. All so that they can game the immigration system. But they're showing up at the border. In some cases, there are no parents. That's why they're unaccompanied minors. What are we supposed to do? I mean, this is, this is this, you know, Central America, you know, dropping kids off at the border who have no parents, who, who, who knows what's happening to them. We're trying to make order of this whole process. You know, is there any criticism allowed for parents that are doing this? I, I just want to know. Is that something that we're allowed to say? Maybe this, is, maybe this is a bad choice for the parents involved. No, instead what you have are these calls for the the doxing of border patrol officers that they should be this is in this New York Times article where people are, where, where she's saying she says this is not an argument for doxing it's about exposure of border patrol agents participations in atrocities to audiences whose opinions they care about she says well we'll just make it known at the local level who these people are so that they can be shamed by their peers you can't do this just at a local level, you moron. Whoever this, what's her name? I got to get this. Uh, her name is Kate Cronin Furman. She's a total idiot. Really is. What, you're, oh, you're, you're right. It's just going to be local. Just post their stuff on Facebook because that's local. You're going to be able to control the spread of that information. You know, someone in Border Patrol is going to get attacked. Someone in Border Patrol is going to get really seriously hurt by one of these Antifa-style lunatics that are so prevalent now it seems, on the left. And then they're going to turn around and say, oh, but we, you know, we, it's not our fault. We didn't do anything. Well, you're calling for the doxing of people. You know, you just had some left-wing nut sentenced to prison time for using his uh, Capitol Hill access to dox a bunch of, of Republican senators. You know, when do we, when are we allowed to say that this, this degree of crazy is much more prevalent on their side than our side? We don't call for people to be doxed. We don't call for people that we disagree with to be shamed who are doing their jobs for the government. These are law enforcement officers. They should be getting praise for what they're doing. And Border Patrol is dealing with a lot right now. And the Democrats' answer to all this is to make their lives harder, to make their lives more difficult, to make it so that they're possibly under threat and they're being shamed by their peers. Now, I know this is some stupid British professor, but the point is the New York Times published her. The point is that this editorial has been given a real platform and influence because it represents a prevalent mindset among Democrats, which is hatred of Border Patrol, which supports calling the Border Patrol or or calling these detention facilities uh, concentration camps, which thinks that calling this mass atrocities is, is an appropriate thing to do. It is a moronic thing to do. It's a disgrace. And it dramatically undermines and underplays true atrocities throughout history. It's, you know, look, the Democrats have completely lost their minds. They, you know what really needs to happen? They need to just be annihilated in the next election at the ballot box. They need to just be destroyed. They really do. Otherwise, they're just going to keep getting crazier and crazier. So I really hope that President Trump, for their own good, President Trump needs to crush the Democrats in 2020. You are now entering the Freedom Hunt Tactical Operations Center. All sensitive programs must be kept strictly need to know. Team Buck is cleared. Roger that. And ready for the Buck Brief. 
I asked him, I said, would you like me to come across the line? He said, I would be honored to do that. I would be honored. Now, I didn't know really what he was going to say, uh, but it was my honor to do it. We had a very good meeting. President Obama wanted to meet, and Chairman Kim would not meet him. The Obama administration was begging for a meeting. They were begging for meetings constantly, and Chairman Kim would not meet with him. And for some reason, we have a certain chemistry or whatever. Big meeting. Everyone, I think, can agree on that. Between President Trump, the leader of the free world, and Kim Jong-un, the dictator of North Korea. Trump actually crossed over into North Korean territory, stood on the People's Republic of North Korea, Democratic People's Republic of North Korea, terra firma. And as we can assume what happened in a case like this, Oh, my gosh, the libs in the media have completely freaked out about it. And now they're trying to tell us that that Trump loves dictators. Now, I I would note a few things here to put this in the proper and and I'll get into the Democratic criticisms. We'll talk about there. There's no question that what Trump is doing. There's a risk here. There are risks to this perception risks more than anything else. I don't think the national security risks are what people Uh, are making them out to be because the sanctions are still in place. There have been no concessions here. There's no loosening up, uh, allowing North Korea into the banking, you know, into the international banking community or anything. No, none of that. Not what Obama, there's no pallets of cash in response for hostages being released. We're not begging for North Korea to make a deal with us. We're trying to induce North Korea to make a deal with us with Sticks, really, not much in the way of carrots. The only carrot being offered here is President Trump saying nice things and having some personal contact and and interaction with the little dictator of North Korea, Kim Jong-un. There has been a legacy of 30 years of failure on this issue. You have all these different figures out there who act like they know what the secret formula is to get Kim Jong-un to finally give up the nuclear weapons program entirely, but they have no idea. No one's been able to figure this out. In fact, they've been wrong time and again. They've been, it's been the opposite of successful. You know, there was a, there, there have been instances of both Democrats and Republicans before this, who had all the smartest people working for them on this issue, who were swindled, who were bamboozled. There was supposed to be a freeze of the North Korean program for a time. And we found out, oh, they're cheating. In the Bush administration, the Obama administration thought that they'd be able to get some concessions from Kim Jong-un. They got nothing. They didn't get to first base. One remarkable, uh, remarkable consistency in Obama's foreign policy years was on issue after issue. It's hard to even say that they failed because they couldn't even get to first base. They weren't even able to get up to bat so that so that they they weren't able to strike out. Mideast peace is a good example. They got nothing on Mideast peace. Nothing. North Korea denuclearization, nothing. So, you know, you, you, criti- you criticize them, in a sense, from the absence of wrong action because they took no action. And it's easy to say that you didn't, you know, it's easy to, to pretend that you've done nothing wrong when you've actually just done nothing. And that is time and again the case with the Obama administration. But, you know, that's why now we're going to have a little bit of a, of a fight over whether or not Obama even wanted to meet with Kim Jong-un. Here is former Director of National Intelligence, which let me just tell you, folks, sounds like a fancy job. D 
DNI coordinating. DNI is a joke. The DNI could go away tomorrow. All right, you, you heard it here. If you haven't heard it somewhere else before, which you probably haven't, DNI can go away tomorrow. Nobody cares. Nobody respects the DNI. Nobody cares what the DNI has to say. The DNI is a bureaucratic info traffic cop that is totally unneeded. You know the traffic cop in your neighborhood who's standing there and there's like no cars coming in either direction? You're like, wow, that's a, a real waste of city resources. That's like the director of national intelligence. There's just no need for it. There's a lot of information going around, but the DNI doesn't really play an important role. It's just it was a post 9-11 bureaucratic. Oh, my gosh, we need to avoid the stovepipe of information. So let's create this near ceremonial post. So that's why I don't think that Clapper is some super intel genius and don't even think the directors of any of these places are. Look at John Brennan running the CIA, my former my former home and uh, guy has made a complete clown, complete clown of himself. On the national stage. Well, he was very beloved by Obama, which you that should tell you all you really have to know. I mean, any, anybody who really thinks that on national security, Obama knows what's up. I think that's that is all you need. But here's what Clapper said about this claim that Trump made on meeting with Kim Jong Un. And all the deliberations that I participated in on, on North Korea during the Obama administration, I can recall no instance whatever where President Obama ever indicated any interest whatsoever uh, in meeting with uh, uh, Chairman Kim. I just, uh, you know, that's, that's news to me. Well, it was also news to him that there was domestic spying going on using the NSA, and he lied under oath about that, but I suppose nobody particularly cared. Uh, Clapper is clearly a Democrat partisan now, or at least an anti-Trump partisan, which is effectively the same thing. Someone tell me what Obama managed with North Korea. The answer is nothing. Okay, but let's not focus too much on Obama. I know this is there's some benefit from comparison with the previous administration, if nothing else, as a means of showing that the media is unserious in their criticisms of Trump uh, as anything other than partisan attack. And that those from the previous administration who act like they know don't know at all. They don't know squat different word i'd rather use than squat but this is a family friendly show so you've got trump meeting with kim jong-un now do i think this is a, now now let's look at since we can tell the dems okay shut up you don't know what you're doing you don't have the answers obama's foreign policy was a disaster now let's look at is trump moving in the right direction with kim jong-un very tough to say i'm going to tell you i wish that he wasn't some of the stuff he says, look, let's all be right. You and I can be honest with each other. It's a little weird when he says, you know, there was love. And I know Trump is unusual and different, but I mean, come on. There are some limits here. I wish he wouldn't say that stuff the way he says it. You know, Kim Jong-un, if you believe the news reports, I mean, he's a bad guy no matter what. And I believe, I mean, North Korea is a gulag above ground and a mass grave below it. But I mean, some of the really sensationalist stuff out there about how he's had members of his uh, senior military executed with anti-aircraft guns. That's definitely overkill. Uh, but that's been reported numerous times. So he's, he's a bad guy. I wish the president wasn't quite so friendly with him, but I also give the president a lot of leeway because what are really, what are really the alternatives here? How else is he supposed to get a breakthrough when everything else has failed? He's coming at this from outside the box, and the box hasn't worked in a long time. You know, he's a guy that when you 
when when push comes to shove, Kim Jong-un is really the inheritor of a fascistic Japanese imperial style state where the leader is also a, an emperor god and there's a racial purity and a, a racist xenophobia beneath all of the rhetoric about national, you know, national unity and defense and all these things against these external aggressors. And we have not the slightest idea, really, how to create a new narrative that would allow Kim Jong-un to say, all right, you know what? We are going to take this very different path. That's what he needs. There has to be a new storyline other than the whole world wants to destroy North Korea because the only story that's fed to the North Korean people is that everyone wants, everyone in the outside world, and particularly America, wants to kill all of them. That's what they're told. That's what the propaganda is. They used the war uh, back in the 1950s as the proof of that. So, you know, all propaganda has to be rooted in some plausibility or else it doesn't work. They point to our very nasty uh, war, the Korean War, and they say, see, they tried to work with the South Koreans to destroy us. And thankfully, the Chinese came to our rescue. But these horrible, evil Americans who are the reason you're poor because of all the sanctions and all the economic warfare they level against us. It's because they hate the honorable and decent North Korean people. And it's only through the labors and the love of Kim Jong-un. Uh, the the supreme, the ultimate leader in North Korea, that the North Korean people are not consumed in a giant fireball by the angry, evil Americans. Now, you can hear all that and say, oh, that's so absurd. Yeah, but you also have access to the Internet and you have an education and you have a perspective about the real world. A lot of people in North Korea don't. How do you walk away from that kind of propaganda? How do you steer an entire country away from believing that it faces annihilation extinction at the hands of these external aggressors that's what trump's trying to figure out no one no one has an answer to this problem set now here's what i will say if trump doesn't get anything done in time for the uh, the re-election this will be a an area of legitimate criticism i think that's not to say that oh the obama administration's foreign policy was better or anything but you know he's got to show some results over the course of four years or else we don't hold people accountable at all. But there's a difference also between accountability and, well, now I'm going to vote for the other guy because this is the problem. Ultimately, I almost wish the Democrats on foreign policy, on immigration, for sure. I wish they were a little bit less crazy because it would be easier to hold this president to account on our own side. Because there could at least there's some semblance, right? There'd be some possibility of an alternative. The issue that I'm coming up against now is the Democrats are such a bunch of wackos on foreign policy, on domestic policy, that Trump's got to look at look at what they're doing, look at what they're saying, and just come back to us and go, well, it's going to be me no matter what, guys. So, uh, you know, pipe down a little bit. I, I, I sometimes think that it'd be better if the Democrats were a more centrist party. It'd be better if they were a realistic alternative in some ways to Trump because it would allow us to push Trump further to deliver on the agenda because they're so crazy. Trump looks at us and he's like, well, what's it going to be? And I, I wish that weren't the case, but I, I do think that this this uh, makes it easier on him. And it's certainly the case on foreign policy. They, they can criticize Trump all day long. 
What what do we really want? We, we think a Bernie Sanders a Bernie Sanders administration is going to know how to handle North Korea. You know the 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 communists, but they're the bad communists, and I hate the bad communists. I want the good communists. I don't know, Bernie. You seem to just like the commies. Bernie liketh the commies. So I don't know. Maybe he'll maybe he'll be able to speak commie to North Korea and get them to some kind of a deal. I think that's very unlikely, though. So we'll have to say they they can talk about how a redistributive economy. Well, no, there's there's no way. Look, it's not even worth going down this. It's going to start making fun of how Bernie Sanders is crazy on foreign policy. But there's no there's no way. The Democrats aren't a realistic alternative. So all we have are our voices to raise to Trump and say, hey, man, can you can you get this stuff done? And he'd probably say, hey, Buck, I got an idea. Why don't you let me do what I'm doing? Because I'm president and you're not. And I figured out a lot of stuff that everybody else said couldn't be figured out. And I've been right on China and I've been right on Iran and I'm going to be right on North Korea. And you know what? If the president said that to me, I'd have to say, all right, well played, sir. I'm just trying. I'm just trying to keep him real. I'm not. I'm not getting off the train. I'm just trying to help the train go as fast as the Trump train go as fast as it can. I'm little buck with soot on my face is throwing coal, you know, throwing coal into that furnace to help the Trump train go a little faster. That's what I'm trying to do. But then again, I'm riding on that train, so I probably can't get a little too sassy, too saucy for my own good. We'll be right back. We've seen a history here, uh, especially in this case, where Donald Trump announces these summits and nothing really comes out of it. It's not as easy as just going and, you know, uh, bringing a hot dish over the fence to the dictator next door. Uh, This is a ruthless dictator. And uh, when you go forward, you have to have clear focus and a clear mission and clear goals. And that has been our problem so far. Uh, the president will meet with him. That's fine. It's always good to talk to people uh, when you're dealing with something so important as nuclear weapons. But then we have no clear path and nothing comes out of it. Um, and so I hope that will change. I would think working with our allies would make it better. It's all show. It's all symbolism. It's not substance. And uh, right after the Singapore summit a year ago, he told the American people, and folks will remember this, that North Korea was no longer a threat. But it turns out that then they did uh, weapons testing after that. Here you get a bunch of Democrats. That was uh, Klobuchar and Julian Castro, whose foreign policy experience is, from what I understand, basically zero. You know, I didn't think you should have foreign policy experience because that a lot of people haven't had foreign policy jobs, but they understand foreign policy. They're not his foreign policy knowledge strikes me as zero. It's perhaps a much more important gauge of what's really going on here. But, you know, Klobuchar's criticism there is a very telling one because it's just all, well, you know, he hasn't really, you know, he's got these summits, but nothing's come out of it. All right. What would you like him? To, what would you like him to do? What's the better idea? Sanctions, no talking, no diplomacy, nothing. Okay, well, North Korea and Iran are different. You see, this is people keep conflating these things. They keep acting like, well, North Korea and Iran, it's not similar. Iran does not yet have nukes. North Korea does, got a bunch of them. So it's a much higher threat, a much harder problems, a much higher threshold dealing with a nuclear armed state to get them to consider not being a nuclear armed state than it is somebody that hasn't even gotten there yet and stopping them from getting there. These are different things. It's not that's why when people start comparing the Obama approach and the Trump approach on this, uh, the, the North Koreans are hoping to get to a place 
where they'd be able to fire a missile with a nuclear payload on it that could detonate in the on the U.S. mainland in the lower 48. It can already likely hit um, Hawaii and Guam and probably Alaska or I don't know, maybe not Alaska, but actually, no, Alaska would be closer. So they're trying to do that. And also there's the proliferation concern about once North Korea gets to that level, then they'd be able to sell these missiles. And all you got to do is sell a few of them on the black market to the Iranians or to any number of different rogue regimes or bad non-state actors. And you got a real problem on your hands. So Trump has to do something here. And the something he's decided to do is to form a personal relationship with someone who is granted an odious and terrible little character. But it's not like he's propping him up so that the next election goes against Kim Jong-un's opposition. Kim Jong-un is the leader, is the premier of this country. We have to deal with him if we're going to deal with this problem. I think that Trump deserves leeway on this. I don't know if he's going to be able to make this work in the end. I don't know if it's possible for anyone to make it work in the end. But, you know, the one part of this that I keep coming back to, and I said this today on Outnumbered, Trump is better than his predecessors on foreign policy because when you look at the most important scoreboard there is, he is not he is not putting U.S. soldiers in harm's way and losing limbs and lives for some nonsense domestic political purpose. You know, to, to not look weak or, you know, things that Obama did. I mean, what Obama did in Afghanistan, I think, is unconscionable. Trump isn't starting wars for no reason other than the polls. So that puts him in my book ahead of not just Obama, but ahead of Bush, too. Bush, let's be honest, there were some there were mistakes made. I think there were mistakes made in good faith, but there are mistakes nonetheless. You have a president who seems to love authoritarian people. Critics call the encounter an empty photo op alongside a murderous dictator. What's the president going to get out of it other than a photo op? Just for the photo op. The undercurrent of this entire trip, meeting with authoritarian figures. Looking for allies in the leaders of authoritarian nations. Cozy up to dictators, authoritarian rulers, to despots. You're coddling up to our enemies, these dictators, these authoritarian regimes authoritarian Donald Trump was sucking up to. Let's deal with this talking point, shall we? I've been hearing this from Democrats for a long time, specifically on the issue of North Korea, but it's not only in North Korea where it'll it'll come up. That it's a photo op when he meets with Kim Jong-un. It's a photo op. Okay, let's assume for a moment that what they're saying, that there's some truth to that, whatever that means, that that this is largely or, or even partially driven by Trump's ego. What is the huge downside of the photo op? No, no, I know people say, oh, we've all been programmed to think photo op is terrible. A lot of foreign policy is about photo ops. A lot of foreign policy is the optics, you know, tear down this wall, people actually tearing it down, right? (laughs) Shaking hands on the deck of the aircraft carrier, taking the surrender, all these different things, all the the optics of it. The bad optics of Trump meeting with Kim Jong-un are how is that going to affect us in a negative way? What, what's going to the world's going to think Kim Jong Un's not a bad guy? That's unserious. Of course, everyone, everyone knows he's a bad guy. But there are a lot of bad regimes that we have to deal with. Is she, you know how how ethical, how wonderful do we think Xi Jinping really is? The Chinese premier. I mean, the Chinese execute people in sham trials. The Chinese had a one China policy for a long time. I'm not saying China's not as bad as North Korea, but it doesn't mean China's good. The leadership of China is good. A lot of countries have 
bad governments, bad guys in charge. We deal with them all the time. Never mind, you, know, you go back and you see, oh, let's find photos of you know, Rumsfeld shaking hands with Saddam. And yeah, sometimes we've made, okay, well, let's go back and see a photo of FDR yucking it up with Stalin. This stuff happens. You deal with the leaders you have to deal with. What is going to happen from this photo op? They keep saying, oh, it's a photo op. Okay, so what? Kim Jong-un is going to do what? He already has people worshiping his portrait, which is in every home in North Korea, who can't say anything about it. Now he's going to have a photo of him and Trump in every home for them to worship? How much worse is it really going to get on the optics? You do have a situation where, from a freedom perspective, from a, from a free thought and free speech perspective, North Korea could not be any worse, really. I think it was Hitchens who once said that North Korea is like somebody read 1984 and said, I think I can make this work. So there's a photo op situation with who does is the belief here that someone will see the president of the United States meeting with the leader of North Korea and then decide that North Korea is not bad. You know, premiers of different countries will sit down and talk even when their countries are at war. They'll sit down and talk when their countries are tearing each other apart. You know, they'll they'll try to end hostilities when there's been you know huge loss of life. That has occurred. You know, representatives of countries talk when there's active hostilities going on. Now, I I do think that Trump could lay off the like, I love Kim Jong-un. You know, he's really he's really great stuff. I, but he's also trying to build a personal relationship. Maybe he's trying to appeal to a malignant narcissist in the only way that he thinks will work, which is to just go big on his ego. And you know, Trump's got a really big ego, too. So he may have an intuitive understanding of this. I don't know. I do know that all these people criticizing him don't know, don't know crap, though. They have no idea how to make the situation better. And the stakes are very high. And we really don't want a war with North Korea. And it wouldn't be that hard for it to all of a sudden turn back on that pathway. And, you know, the casualties in the Korean Peninsula would be through the roof very quickly. We really don't want that to happen. So I think that this is... Bad. A lot of it is bad faith criticism of what Trump is doing. But just this point about the photo op. Oh, the photo op. Look what he's doing. Does anyone think that if Trump didn't give a photo op with Kim Jong-un, that maybe the regime in North Korea would change? Is that is that supposed to be the analysis now? Uh, were, were it not for Trump giving Kim Jong-un that photo op, the opposition from within Pyongyang would rise up. There is no opposition in Pyongyang. There's none. There's, we're not worried about undercutting the moderates. There are no moderates. What's the, what's the alternative here? So that's how I see it. And just remember this. Um, and they always say that the president loves authoritarians. But I think the president does like larger-than-life characters in general. Um, but I can, I can tell you that any authoritarian that would harm an American would find himself on the wrong side of Trump really fast. And Trump has had some very, you know, very harsh words in the past for different bad guys. Certainly look, look at the way that he approaches Iran versus his predecessor. Um, but also speaking of his predecessor for a moment, remember with Cuba? How we had this whole softening, this thaw in relations with Cuba, which continues to be a thorn in the side of the United States, not just in U.S.-Cuba policy, but in all of the Western Hemisphere and all of our dealings with Latin America. Cuba is... Not constructive. Cuba is a stumbling block working against our interests. Yet, can any of you name a single concession that the Cuban government, the Castro regime 
made with that thaw in relations, to get that thaw in relations that the Obama administration just got going? I think the answer is probably no, because there was not a single political or economic concession made by the by the Castro regime. Obama just figured, hey, Cuba's not that bad. Let's be friends with them. And here's, you know, they, they talk about how Trump is so fond of dictators and so fond of authoritarians. The Castros are are horrific authoritarians and have imprisoned and tortured and murdered people for decades and have impoverished an island of people that had a great culture and obviously a lot of them are incredibly industrious, hardworking, God-fearing, decent, good, and unfortunately we've got a lot of them here in America now. The Cuban immigrant population in this country, and you see this in Florida and elsewhere, has been a, a real addition to our American family. But there are a lot of Cubans that are still imprisoned on that island by the Castro regime, and here is how the media talked about President Obama when he was just a one-man Castro love squad. Play clip four. Obama making history as the first American president to visit since Calvin Coolidge 88 years ago. History has just been made. President Obama touching down Air Force One landing here in Havana. The first U.S. president in nearly 90 years to step foot on Cuban soil. To have the American president on Cuban soil. The implications are deep and yet unknown never thought i would really live to see this day this is a momentous thing that we're watching right now just remember folks this is the same regime that let the soviets park nuclear weapons on their territory to point them at us pretty big deal oh photo op versus making history and we could do a whole supercut just of that a montage of oh trump with kim jong-un it's all a photo op oh obama with cuba and the castro regime it's Making history. I, I thought that we didn't want to be friends with authoritarians and dictators. I thought that this was such a terrible thing. See, this is on, on, on the level that is almost the most bothersome here for me. What you see is that the press corps would rather root against American interests and American safety. If it if it means it, that they can take shots at the Trump administration. And those same criticisms they have are muted when there's a Democrat in office. This is why people don't trust the media. This is why the stories I see about how journalism layoffs are at an all-time high since the recession, uh, one, are not surprising, and two, I think, we, I think journalism's kind of earned it. I think there needs to be a great, a, a great reset in American journalism where everyone is either honest about who they are and what they're doing or they don't have an audience anymore they shouldn't have an audience anymore and foreign policy is just one of these areas where whether you care that much about the specifics of any one u.s relationship with a foreign entity or not it's it's just a hypocrisy bonanza with all these left-wing journos running around who praised everything that obama did i mean obama's foreign policy was run by people who had no idea what was going on obama had no idea what was going on his teams had no idea what was going on they don't and when i said what's going on i mean they don't understand how the world works they don't understand who the good guys and the bad guys really are a lot of the time. You know, they're far more hostile toward, you know, toward a state like Israel than they're willing to be toward states that were really causing problems for us, like Cuba.
You know, we're, we're looking for any opportunity to be friends with the Cubans, but also taking any opportunity to criticize Israel. That's really what Obama's foreign policy was. When you were asked about the case of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, you did not respond to that question in front of the, the Saudi conference. I don't know conference. that anybody were you asked me. Afraid of, uh, yeah. Were you afraid of offending him on that subject? No, not at all. I don't really care about offending people. I sort of thought you'd know that. Trump with a little buck slap for Acosta there. Uh, you know, this is, this is asking him about, you know, why, why the G20? Why aren't you making more noise about Khashoggi? Khashoggi, who the press essentially lied about the whole time, made it sound like he was a, a U.S., a U.S. Uh, either permanent resident or, or citizen. He was neither. Khashoggi was a foreigner, folks. Now, that doesn't mean it's okay at all for him to be uh, brutally executed and cut up into pieces in, in a consulate in Istanbul, as we know, that's what happened. But it does mean that it's really not our fight. This is the truth. People are executed. Bad things happen to people in foreign countries all the time. And if it's a non-U.S. citizen, it's in a foreign country, we're allowed to be upset about it. But are we supposed to expend U.S. resources and effort? I mean, are, are we really going to send in the, the 82nd Airborne anytime a journalist is imprisoned anywhere in the world or is, is tortured anywhere in the world? Because, you know, that's somehow our, our mandate. Oh, well, if he writes or she writes for The Washington Post, is that what's supposed to happen? The whole Khashoggi thing is just an effort to try and one. I mean, when I say the Khashoggi thing, the, the way the media talks about it, they only care insofar as it's a complicated situation for the administration. Saudi Arabia is a country that we need. Again, you deal with bad people in this world. The Saudi regime is bad. Saudi regime is bad. You know, the more Islamist a country is, the worse it is. This is a a true thing. And there's certainly not nearly enough, uh, not nearly enough emphasis on this, that, that political Islam and individual freedom and women's rights and gay rights, these things, th- th- there are correlations and they're not good ones with however, however much Islamism there is in a country. And in Saudi Arabia, the criticism is always of the royal family, but it's more than just the royal family that's messed up in Saudi Arabia. But what would they, what would they like the president to do? This is just like their, their whiny, the press corps whiny little criticism of Trump whenever he meets with Putin is that there's there's nothing that he could do that would get them to stop complaining. Oh, he's so cozy with Putin. Oh, he's, was Obama not cozy with Medvedev? Was Obama not cozy with think think of all the different foreign leaders he had to meet with all the different bad guys on the world stage? There's a lot of stuff we have, we have to, you know, don't spend too much time thinking about the different stands. You know, Turkmenistan, Uzbekistan, Azerbaijan, Kazakhstan, all these places. You know, we're, we're pretty friendly with some of those regimes. And trust me, the human rights and individual freedom there is not great. But we work in a complicated and difficult world. We do the, and our government should be doing its best for us, for the American people, not to get praise from the New York Times editorial page, which I think is so much of what drives Democrat opinion and unfortunately can even influence the Republican side on foreign policy in ways that it absolutely shouldn't. Uh, we also have Trump doing important stuff at this G20 summit. With China, I mean, I didn't... China! I didn't get into... Uh, China! There we go. I didn't get into 
too much of this because it's really a, a a pause in the which what you have from from Trump's talks with Xi Jinping here. Uh, you've got a, a a delay in the imposition of even more tariffs, and you have some agreement here. Looks like Huawei might be able to buy some U.S. products, so there's less restriction there. We're trying to get this is a carrot and stick situation. But and Trump is is out there saying that he's trying to. Well, here we can listen to the president himself. You don't have to hear me say it. Eight. I look forward to working with you. As you know, we've had a excellent relationship, but we want to do something that will even it up with respect to trade. I think it's something that's actually very easy to do. I actually think that we were very close, and then we. Something happened where uh, it slipped a little bit, and now we're getting a little bit closer. But it would be historic if we could do a fair trade deal. We're totally open to it, and I know you're totally open to it. I know all of your representatives. I've been working very hard with my representatives and the representatives of the United States. And I will say that I think this can be a very productive meeting, and I think we can go on to do something that truly will be monumental and great for both countries. And that's what I look forward to doing. And thank you very much for hosting us. We appreciate it. Thank you. There's no question that there's a little bit of salesmanship here from Trump in this. He's trying to put a bit of a positive spin on what have been so far unsuccessful negotiations. But a negotiation isn't truly unsuccessful until it's over and it hasn't succeeded. And that's, you know, this is a fat lady sing situation. That And that Zoftig female has not, in fact, hit those high notes. There's still time. There's still opportunity here. And you know, one remarkable one remarkable aspect of this entire discussion over the China trade deal situation is that before Trump, we were led to believe that, you know, yeah, China's doing this bad stuff. But, you know, that's just China. China's going to China. What? Can, no, that's not how this is supposed to work. Not supposed to be in a situation where the Chinese can steal intellectual property, can engage in all kinds of trade manipulation and and put up all these barriers and tariffs and there's so much bad behavior on trade from the Chinese and where was the effort to stop it before Trump came along there was no effort to stop it we were told oh China's too important a trading partner what can you do Trump has single-handedly single-handedly changed the conversation here and in his efforts to change the conversation he has been in the main, he's been correct. He has been right. So I think he deserves credit for that. I think people need to say, oh, wait a second. You mean that Trump actually knows what he's doing here? Yeah, he does. Certainly has a better understanding of this intuitively than his predecessors did. An assault on a journalist that has gotten at least the right upset. Conservatives have rallied around Andy No. They understand what's at stake here. They understand how uh, vicious these Antifa thugs are. This happened over the weekend. You know, we've had Andy on this show before. Andy's a a very brave guy. You know, he's not a big guy. He's not a physically imposing guy. But he is doing real journalism. And you have so many people who run around talking about, so many journalists who talk about how they're doing this important work for democracy and they're so brave and we should praise them and thank them and, oh, they're wonderful, right? All this stuff. You hear this all the time. And yet, so few of them do anything other than 
either parrot one another's talking points or just give you the Democratic Party line that's leaked to them from various sources they have in D.C. or wherever. Um, But Andy No is out there showing you what's going on in Portland with Antifa, this organization or this really it is a it is a domestic terror group. And the the thuggery that you see on display is just this is organized violence by the left. That's what it is. They are attacking people. They're intimidating people. It's completely unacceptable. And I'm glad to see that Senator Ted Cruz has stepped up and said that there should be some federal investigation of not just Antifa, but of the Portland mayor, Ted Wheeler. And Portland looked like a city that was completely out of control over the weekend. The police won't step in. Why won't the police step in? We all know it's because... If they had to use force, oh, heaven forbid, against these leftists, then the cries would be of police brutality. But Andy No got attacked viciously. We have some audio of this. The video of it is hard to watch. I watched it, though, over the weekend so I could really see what we're dealing with here. But here's just what it sounded like when Andy was being assaulted by these left-wing fanatics. Portland police just sat there while Andy was getting attacked. He he had a, a nasty um, a brain bleed from getting hit so hard in his head. He was you can see photos of him all over the internet, and he's bleeding badly. He was just attacked. I mean, these people attacked him, and there there's a lot here. I mean, b- before I talk about what this shows us about the the left, we have to look at the broader the broader left Democrats progressives overall and how they don't reject this. They're not willing to be anywhere near as angry about what happened here as they are about the latest Trump tweet or, you know, Kellyanne Conway violating the Hatch Act or some other nonsense that sends them into, you know, complete spasms of rage. But a journalist A journalist being attacked for doing the job of showing people what is a very important news story, a city that has essentially lost control, Portland, Oregon, unable to deal with these these thugs. And they are thugs of Antifa. Uh, You have a lot of either downplaying or obscuring or defending while saying they're not defending this conduct in Portland by... Journalists, by pretty mainstream journalists at that, play 18. It says it right in the name, Antifa, anti-fascism, which is what they were there um, fighting. Listen, there's, you know, no organization is perfect. There was some violence. They are strictly principled anti-fascists. And what they see in the Trump administration and what they see happening in this country, they see, they see the neo-fascism that we see. And they've taken a principal stand to stand against white supremacists and white nationalists wherever they may show up. Self-defense is a legitimate response to white supremacist and neo-Nazi violence. The problem is to equate the violence in reaction against bigotry with the bigotry itself is to misunderstand the fact that when you go to cancer treatment, the radiation is tough treatment, but it is meant to remove the cancer. They wouldn't have been anywhere near there had it not been for the fact that white supremacists, neo-Nazis were out scaring the living daylouts 
out of most of the people in that town. Thuggishness is thuggishness wherever it comes from politically, and, and we should be the first to call it out. I disagree. <laughs> you know, they, they throw around this term fascist, and they skip right behind the very important debate, the very important discussion as to, are we talking about people who are actually fascists? They say Donald Trump is a fascist. Donald Trump is a fascist. How, how do we get to have a debate over that? Do we have to accept their definition of what constitutes a fascist? Do we have to accept that anyone who's a Republican, anyone who they disagree with, can very quickly be labeled with that? This is the problem with what was a short-lived phenomenon of Nazi punching, they would call it. Well, it's not bad to punch somebody for their speech if they're a Nazi. That's what they were saying. And this was at the early stage of the Trump administration. But then some people pointed out, well, hold on a second. Are they actually punching Nazis or are they punching limited government conservatives who don't agree that there are 37 genders? Because if it's the latter, we've got a big problem. Now we have advocacy for violence as a response to speech. Right? If it's the latter, then we have to really look at where does our society go from here? We can't have a civilized discussion about areas of disagreement without resorting to fisticuffs in the streets. There were blue check journalists. And this is why I hate all the sanctimony from, yes, particularly CNN, but other places as well about, oh, my gosh, Trump is putting journalists in jeopardy. We're under threat. Here you have a journalist. Imagine for one second that if instead of a bunch of obvious left wing progressive loons, you had a swarm of people wearing MAGA hats who started punching somebody who was just there photographing, videotaping, providing the public with information about what was going on, we would have to have national moments of reconciliation over this. And we would have to have teach-ins and sit-ins. The media would be a DEFCON 1, and that's just for starters. But because this is a bunch of left-wingers who, remember, I played that audio for you. It's, it's, it's important to note that they're not entirely reviled. They're not entirely cast aside by the left. Not at all. There are prom- Those were prominent voices. You probably recognize them. You got Don Lemon there, uh, Eric Dyson, right? Isn't that the guy's name? Uh, you had prominent voices in liberal media saying that what they're doing by attacking people in the streets is fine. These people aren't fighting fascists. Antifa is just a cool name that they, well, they think it's cool, that they've given themselves... But they, there was black block in the Occupy Wall Street protests. There, were, there have been black block at anti-police protests that I've been to. And they're just left-wing extremists who employ this tactic of wearing all black so they can engage in paramilitary-style behavior in the streets in order to intimidate, harass, and assault and attack people whose ideas they disagree with. This is what they do, and the media does not revile it the media does not say oh my gosh they're not representative of us they say well maybe this is what you keep hearing we don't support the tactic this is what the democrats do this is what the left does we don't support the tactic but here's a 700 word essay about how we kind of support the tactic we don't want people who are democrats to do this but now i'm going to go into some detail about why democrats sometimes have to do this because you know trump in the era of trump just like the Oh, I'm not I'm not doxing members of Border Patrol. I just want their personal information and what they do to be made public so they can be shamed and perhaps threatened and perhaps who knows 
what else? The best way to deal with these people, the best way to deal with these leftists is to make them have to have to speak clearly on these points of argument, to have to say what they really think. What do you really what do they really believe? They're able to use weasel words and oh, a little this, a little that. Insinuendo, innuendo and insinuation, if they're able to just suggest things without necessarily saying it, then the media will always give them a pass and the media will give itself a pass on this. Do you think that any of them are anywhere near as upset at CNN uh, about what happened to Andy No as they are about Trump saying to Jim Acosta that he's rude? No, saying that Jim Acosta is rude, they will tell you, which he is and he's he's a punk, but saying that he's rude. We know that the Democrat media will tell you that's an assault on the First Amendment, that that means that there are there are no more freedoms in this country. Our freedoms are under assault and we can't accept this. And But when a journalist is attacked physically and goes to the hospital and is bloodied and threatened for doing his job, far less outrage. This is why I don't take them seriously. This is why I do not want to hear it from them when they make these claims about how they're all about the defense of the First Amendment. They're all about freedom of the press. No, they just find that convenient. If it allows them to bash Trump, then they're all about it. If it's a useful tool in the criticism of this administration, then it's a sacrosanct principle. But when it's somebody who's not even a conservative, Andy No is just Showing us what Antifa is. He just reports on this. He is doing journalism. And fellow blue check journalists who are libs were publicly questioning whether he should even be referred to as a journalist. Which I think that I think we're heading in that direction, too, where they're just going to start saying that to be a journalist there. I, I assure you of this. There are lots of libs and lots of Democrats who think that for you to be worthy of the title journalist, to be worthy of. That as how people refer to your role. You have to be a lib. You have to be a Democrat. That there is, in effect, no such thing as a conservative journalist or a non-liberal journalist. Can't happen. Only one perspective is worthy of that name, is worthy of the title, which is why I also say that journalism is dead, has been for a long time. Humor is dead. The left killed it. Journalism is dead. The left killed it. Higher education is dead. The left killed it. The left is good at killing things. They've destroyed a lot. They've uh, certainly made sports more political than they should be. Haven't destroyed sports yet, but just give them time. Once we have no more separation between men and women, and then we're told that yeah, you're, you're going to have to have mixed gender professional sports teams any day now. I mean, they know what they'll destroy that too. Nothing is nothing is safe from their agenda. But on, on what happened to Andy No over the weekend, you know that I respect Andy's work. Uh, he's shown the American people what Antifa is really all about. He's also been willing to look at the other side. There, it depends on the rally. But sometimes what they call a, a fascist rally is a pro-right or a pro-free speech conservative or right-wing group. In one case, I believe that was led by a guy who's a who's a minority. I mean, there's a, there's been a whole a whole series of, of interviews with this fellow who does these unite the right rallies. And he's not, he's not a white nationalist. He's not a white supremacist and he's not even white. You won't get the media to spend much time telling you about that. 
that the journalists out there are not completely united in defense of Andy. Now, any journalist you see who's ever whined about what Trump says about them or about some Trump tweet who has expressed no solidarity with Andy, no has expressed no outrage at the leftists, all Democrat voters, by the way, probably Bernie voters, if we're going to be honest, but maybe some Warren voters in there, too. But there's if they haven't expressed outrage at the leftists who attacked Andy, no, then you understand that they're just they're just frauds. It's just all politics to them. There is no principle involved. And we're we're uh, praying for Andy and a, and a speedy recovery, and I want him back there doing the reporting he does because it's important work. We need to see it. And and he's a look. He's a brave little dude. And he's not a big guy. Not, he's not a, imposing at all. And he they know who he is in Portland. These lunatics seek him out, and they obviously attack him. And he keeps on he keeps on coming. That's bravery. Do you think there's going to be any journalism award for any? You know, no, they're, they're going to give an award to smug jerk Tapper, fake Jake, for you know taking whatever nonsense the deep state folks like Clapper feed Tapper. That's, you know, that's worthy of an award. Not Andy No on the front line showing us what Antifa really is. No awards for him. We'll be right back. This is part of their impeachment procedure. I just won't call it that. So, look, Bob Mueller's coming. We all got questions for him. Um, I think the one question all Americans have is, when did you first learn there was no collusion, no coordination, no conspiracy? And if you learned that early, why didn't you tell us that? That was your central charge as a special counsel. We do know one thing. When we deposed Jim Comey, we asked him about any collusion or coordination. And he said after 10 months, we, we deposed Jim Comey, you know, before after he got fired. But the time they started this in, in the summer of 16 until the day he was fired, May 9, 2017, he said the FBI had found zero evidence of any collusion, coordination, conspiracy. So how long did it take Bob Mueller and his team of 19 Democrat lawyers to figure this out? And when they did, why didn't they tell us? Why did they wait to talk to the midterms? I, I, that's one question I think everybody in this country has. We do have a countdown here until you have that much anticipated Mueller testimony. People are saying right now, oh, he's just going to stick to the report. He can't really do that. Because if he just refuses to answer questions about anything and just says, look at the report, look at the report, it's in the report. One, sometimes it won't be in the report. And based on the question, it will be, in fact, valid for him to have been asked it. And so he can't just fall back on the It's in the report. It's in the report. And then beyond that, uh, if if he just stonewalls, well, then people have even more questions about what happened here. There's a great piece and hat tip Molly Hemingway for uh, for sharing it from her her Twitter account today on real from real clear investigations by Eric Felton. And he breaks down from a linguistic perspective. Some of really the tools of propaganda, and I know something about propaganda tools as to work in the CIA, and, and it's something that we had to study the tools of propaganda in the Mueller report. He calls it insinuendo, word I used before there, why the Mueller report doth repeat so much. And others have noted this, but he goes into the specific language here. And and the the one paragraph, for example, that uh, pops up again and again is that Papadopoulos, quote, suggested to a representative of a foreign government that the Trump campaign had received indications from the Russian government that it could assist the campaign through the anonymous release of information damaging to candidate Clinton. This, this claim is repeated on 81, 89, 93, as well as other places. It's effectively word for word in the report. And what he does is break down how that 
phrasing of it isn't even accurate. That Papadopoulos first, why suggested and to a representative of a foreign government when what it was, what really happened when you break down the facts is Papadopoulos, while drinking at a bar, allegedly said and debates or argues the point as to whether it was said to him first or he told the other guy first to an Australian diplomat. Hey, I've heard this weird rumor that their Russians may have something on Hillary and they may like drop it at some point to an Australian. Or in this case to Mifsud. Right. I'm sorry. They know it's Alexander Alexander Downer here. Later on, it's Mifsud, who's the professor with uh, Carter Page. So. Why use language that's imprecise? Why repeat imprecise and really incorrect language over and over in the report? It's because the whole purpose of what Mueller did was to create the perception of there was wrongdoing. We just couldn't find it. And that's the rhetorical intent. That's why the propaganda is structured the way that it that it was. Got more coming up. I got to tell you, this stuff going on in Hong Kong is is really interesting um, because you have a, a, a showdown between the the forces of. Beijing, in a sense here, I mean, you have a showdown between China, the government, the authoritarian regime and Hong Kong, which was promised it's it's 50 years of autonomy and is figuring out pretty quickly that a, a promise with the Chinese government is not exactly what people would like to think it is. Or most people realize that a promise from the Chinese government isn't really worth very much. Here you got the Wall Street Journal with some of the updates. Police fired tear gas and charged protesters who occupied Hong Kong's legislature on the anniversary of the city's return to Chinese sovereignty. As a movement that had until now largely stuck to nonviolent means lurched toward anarchy. Protesters who had stormed the city's legislature earlier on Monday evening, spray painting graffiti on a wall inside, retreated as police retook the building and dispersed the crowds. By 1 a.m. the streets were emptied of demonstrators. The mayhem at the government headquarters stood in stark contrast to an earlier scene nearby where organizers estimate 550,000 demonstrators marched through the streets in scorching summer heat with few incidents reported apart from several cases of heat stroke. OK, so you get the idea. Huge protest here in in Hong Kong. If you haven't seen the images, I mean, it's this is anarchy on the streets. I mean, it's really some nasty stuff going on here. And it's. For us, looking forward, I think you're seeing that the, the Chinese state is going to have its hands full dealing with Hong Kong because the whole long-term plan here was, well, they'll sort of have one, one country but two approaches, and that's not really going to fly, at least not, not by, Beijing's, by Be- Beijing's standards. But it's also a reminder to all of us, why are they all so upset? It's because of this extradition law. You can be extradited if this new law were to were to stand. You could be extradited from Hong Kong to the Chinese mainland justice system. This tells us two things. One is that the people of Hong Kong recognize that the Chinese justice system is not a justice system. So you got to start with that. That's an that is an important recognition. Okay, we all know that. But even people in Hong Kong who are clearly supposed to have some greater belief in their own system, or you'd, you'd hope they had a greater belief in the Chinese system than we do. They do not. They know that it's a corrupt state and you can't uh, 
trust whatever's going to happen there. But then there's another another part of this, another component of this, and that is when a government can take you as part of the legal process, when a government can prosecute you that you know is corrupt, it doesn't have to be able to prosecute everybody for this to be a very effective weapon of political control. The most terrifying thing, in fact, for a lot of people that they deal with at the hands of their government is the prospect of unfair, of, of politicized uh, legal targeting. Right? Essentially, the prosecutor gone mad. The, the uh, Javert from Les Mis. Monsieur. Da, 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 da. You guys know what I'm talking about. Actually, about 10% of you probably know the Les Mis scene that I was trying to reference there. But there's a power mad prosecutor. Uh, that that's chasing around this guy won't leave him alone. Prosecutors can ruin your life. That's the that's the bottom line here. That's what's important to take out take away from this. The justice system can be a tool of oppression. Oh, look at that! It's not just true in China, folks. Not just true in Hong Kong, and that's why they're fighting so much against this. Because all that it means is that the people of Hong Kong would know that their leaders, their business leaders, their political leaders would be subject to the totalitarian whims of the Chinese Central Committee of the Chinese Communist Party, and that would have a massive chilling effect on economic activity, on political organization, on on everything, on freedom, on liberty in Hong Kong, whatever degree of liberty we could say exists in Hong Kong. So I think that's very uh, that's very important. Um, That's that's what you're seeing get so many of these people coming out of the streets, they they know that if a corrupt justice system can target you, you know, kind of like a deep state of sorts, although in this case it's not the deep state, it is just the big state. But if it can go after you, you are living by their leave and you do not have freedom and you do not have rights. The people of Hong Kong aren't going to accept that lying down. Rock and roll, fellow patriots. We made ours go up to 11. It's time for Roll Call. Roll Call. Yes, indeed. From N to the Y to the C up here in New York City. Doing a little outnumbered today. Hope you got a chance to see it on the Fox News. Always enjoy hanging out with the ladies of Outnumbered. I think we had a great chat, a great time. A great time was had by all. This is what people always say. I think a great time was had by all. We enjoyed it. Well, I wish we had spent more time on domestic policy issues. Instead, we spent a lot of time today on foreign policy issues, which, in my opinion, are always of much greater interest to the media. I don't even know if intelligentsia is a word we can use about the media, but the media peeps way ahead of the American peeps. All right. Facebook.com slash Buck Sexton if you want to be a part of Roll Call. Let's start here with Chris. Buck, the question I've not heard from anyone, what happens to all the states that switch their electoral vote to popular when Trump gets the popular vote, even though all the Civil War vets' votes go to the Dems? Um, 
Civil War? I don't know. I, Chris, I don't really understand the question. I'm sorry to say, so I'm going to have to put a... I'm going to have to pass or phone a friend. Mark, you're my friend. Do you have an answer to this question? I don't really understand what he's asking. I do not. Okay. So if, the phone a friend came up, came up short, and there's no multiple choice, so I can't do the 50-50. Uh, let's see. Seth. Uh, hey, Buck, I heard some people writing and complaining about the podcast being overwritten by another program. Just want to let you know I've never had that problem using the Google Podcast app. Shields high. Well, Seth, that's good to know. Thank you so much for letting me know. I do appreciate it. And I'm glad that there are ways you can listen without any interruption. It's important. Important to be able to hear the buck when you want to hear the buck without a lot of other stuff getting in the way. Pavo. Hey, Buck, I have a great potential guest for you. Someone who worked with Donald Trump for two years and is an Asian American. I'd love to be able to send you his press materials. Uh, and Pavel is from a PR firm. Uh, Pavel, sure, send it to producer Mike and we'll take a look. Um, but there you have it. Josh, send me a link. Harry, send me a link. Aaron, hey, Buck, not sure if you saw my last message. It's a very important one. Don't miss this on the topic of abortion. All right, well, here's what Aaron writes. Hey, Buck, on the topic of abortion, I was catching up with an old college friend of mine a while back. And, oh, this gets into some personal stuff here. Uh, Aaron, I will read this, but I'm not going to read this on air if that's okay, because I'm not sure where we're going here. David, it's crazy to watch the Colombian military send in helicopters and special forces to where the filmmakers were with their iPhones and coordinates. Drone strike done. It's nuts. Sorry for the rants tonight, but it's just common sense. Keep up the great work. Uh, I don't know what you're talking about. Um, but thank you, David, for writing in. Huh. I, I don't know what this is. Kyle, guys, I don't know. Tonight, the roll call, we're getting a lot of like, you, you got to give me the full the full context when you're, unless you're referring to the previous message, but you can't refer back to five messages before or something because then I don't know what's going on. Kyle, campaign platform idea, enforce federal immigration laws as vigorously as federal income tax laws or enforce federal income tax laws as vigorously as federal immigration laws. If the latter, I'm going to have a ton of undocumented income in my uh, return next year. I demand I not be separated from my family when charged with tax evasion, skip out of my arraignment and wait for a tax fraud amnesty. Well, Kyle, I agree with you. The same arguments that can be made about how for any one person to not pay his or her taxes. Let's be honest, most tax cheats are dudes. For any one person to not pay his or her taxes, though, is by no means something that can influence the the United States government, nothing else, right? So why should somebody go to prison for what is effectively a victimless crime? Oh, well, you can do this with many crimes, can't you? You can do this on a whole bunch of issues. It's not just immigration. And the moment that you're talking about sending someone to prison, well, then you're talking about inherently separating them from a family. So what is the difference between saying that we should have a nullification, an effective nullification of tax law, tax income tax, and immigration? I don't know. Somebody else is going to have to come up with that one for me. Going to have to let me know. Susan, 
Buck, I'm catching up on podcasts. I heard you mention Trump International for meeting fellow conservatives, and that you're there Tuesdays per message on Roll Call. I live in the Baltimore area. I was thinking of stopping by to meet you and say hello before you leave for NYC. Would you happen to know when you will be there? Love to meet you. I was a caller several years ago. Got to talk to you then, which was awesome. Thanks for your intellectual commentary, always, and variety of topics on your show. Really hard to find your level of analysis and thought-provoking insight. Thanks, Susie. Well, Susie, that's a really kind message, and I very much appreciate it. Uh, and as to when I'll be in the Trump, I will be. There's going to be a, I believe, a Fourth of July show at the Trump International for. Uh, they're going to be doing Eric Bowling's show there, and I'm going to be on that show. So I should be hanging out there for that. Hopefully limiting myself to a glass of tequila or two before I go on air. Because otherwise it'll get a little crazy on the Eric Bowling show. At least I will be getting a little crazy. Uh, but yeah, I should be there. And usually Tuesdays are, I mean, I, I can't guarantee you what Tuesday. But Tuesdays I tend to swing by. A lot of my friends are there. And I happen to live close by. So it's very easy for me to drop by on my way after, after work. It's Trump International is like my version of Cheers. Don't you want to go where everybody knows your name? Have you ever been to the actual Cheers, Mark? I have not. It's a real place in Boston. Really? You know? I didn't know that. Yeah. I've heard the food is terrible, by the way. That makes sense. It's yeah. a tourist trap. Exactly. Exactly. Why can't tourist traps have good food? You know? They, they, they've got you trapped in there. They're going to rip you off and make you pay too much. Can't they at least give you good food? Because they don't have to try. What, what, I know, but it to. just feels like it's so lazy. Tourist traps. That was my big beef with, I'm going to say it, that was my beef with El Paso. I was down there, I said, where should we go for, oh, yeah, I asked a bunch of people, what's the best Mexican food in El Paso? And they all said, oh, you got to go to this place. I forget what the name of it was. Some famous Mexican place. We went there. First of all, they don't even have a liquor license, okay? So they were giving me a, a margarita that was made with some kind of a, agave wine or something. I'm like, uh, I prefer tequila, please. And, and the food was just like, eh, not so good. And then I was like, it looks like nobody who's in this restaurant is from El Paso. It's a lot of tourists. Oh, my gosh. They've sent me to the El Paso tourist trap. This is the El Paso equivalent of being in Times Square and going to the Bubba Gump Shrimp Corporation or whatever. Guys, you know my New York advice. When you come here, don't waste time in Times Square. Go to the rest of Manhattan, other places, other neighborhoods, walk around, be on foot, take the subway, eat the food, smell the smells. You'll like it much better. Janet. Uh, my concern is that I Googled the definition of fascism, and the first thing that popped up on Wikipedia was that it is right wing, which is incorrect. No other source does that, and one even called it liberalism. I emailed Wikipedia and went to the talk page for fascism. They're nonprofit. What's going on? Okay, so Janet's wondering, why is Wikipedia biased? Well, Janet, Wikipedia, like so many, Wikipedia, like so many other online resources, is dominated by leftists. And, you know, for those who are listening to this, if you could please help restore my Wikipedia page, that'd be great because it was really a helpful resource. Leftists tore it down and said that it was promotional or something was just background information on me it you had the uh, the necessary citations to be a wikipedia page and then leftists because they, they don't want a presence for conservatives online or they 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 don't want us to be part of the the digital establishment so yeah they, they tore down my wikipedia page so to speak it was very annoying 
Uh, and you know, they said that it didn't meet their it was basically people complained. Leftists found it. And they do this to other conservatives, from what I understand, too. They don't want you to have a Wikipedia page. It's, it, for them, it's like preventing you from getting verified on, twin, on, on Twitter or something. You're not as, you're not as real deal. Uh, let's see here. Don writes. Um, I don't know what Don wrote here. Long thing. Brian Right. Sure, you're busy getting all your ducks in a row to move back to NYC. If you're looking to decompress over a movie one night, check out Searching for Sugar Man. It's about a no-name blue-collar guy from Detroit who made an album in the States that flopped. However, someone grabbed it, bootlegged it, and flew it to South Africa. His album became the voice of the apartheid movement, and he never even knew it. The documentary is about finding who this guy was. It is an amazingly feel-good film. Please check it out. Brian. Well, Brian, you got to hang out with Papa Sexton, a.k.a. my dad, because he also loves and has recommended to me searching for Sugar Man. So perhaps I will get a chance to check this one out. It was uh, it, it's yeah. You know what? I'm going to add this on my list. I'm, I'm really going to get this one done. I'm going to see this one because I've heard between you and my dad. How much stronger of a recommendation can I possibly have for this between you and my dad? How much more, you know, can there really be? So. I think that's all we need, Brian. I think it's gospel when the two of you say it's good. That's going to be it from the Freedom Hunt for today, friends. Back in the swamp tomorrow. Please don't leave me to the gators, so join me. There's always more gators in the bayou. And uh, we'll be talking about all the latest going on in D.C. Do we have Tommy Laren joining tomorrow, by the way? Is that right? Yes, we do, actually. Yeah, Tommy Laren joining to talk about her book. I saw Tommy in New York City this weekend. She just got engaged. So I'm not saying that I'm a good luck charm, but I'm not not saying I am. So we got a lot of things to discuss tomorrow, team. Thank you so much for hanging with me. We will talk then. You know what's coming. Shield high.